0: Well, Marcy uh, reminded us very, very well about Psalm 27, and about how during this month of Elul uh, we read it. Uh, but we actually read it into—we read it all the way to Yom Kippur. Uh, and its most famous readings, of course, take place during the ten days of awe—the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And m- most people are aware of when we read it then, isn't it kind of funny, most people are aware that's, that you read it during those 10 days, and it's in new information that we read it during the whole previous month. For us, we, uh, I think we got that down that we read it during the whole previous month, but also during those 10 days. And, uh, and, and so it is a great psalm. And we might ask ourselves, why is that the particular psalm that is like a centerpiece of the High Holy Day liturgy, uh, and uh, we began to look at it last week, uh, and we're going to finish that up uh, today. So, if you have your scriptures, or either in uh, either in a book form or electronically, uh, we want to take a look at Psalm twenty-seven. Psalm twenty-seven. Well, we said last time we looked at the first six verses. The last time. And it's very interesting that uh, scholars, many scholars believe that this may have been two uh, different psalms, at one, two songs put together at one particular time in history. Uh, I don't think so, and uh, there are others, many, who, who would say no, that it's one. But the reason that people uh, come to the conclusion that it was two is because the first six verses are really different. From the uh, uh, last eight verses, uh, in 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 the kind of psalm that it is, but uh, I would suggest uh, that it is not, and it's very realistic. It's a very realistic psalm about how we approach God and the confidence that we have in Him. We said last time that when you just read the first three verses of this psalm, that I uh, you know we it's one of those. Uh, a little grouping of verses where we say, yes, I have great confidence in you, Lord, but you have to wonder, does it really match what's going on inside of us? Do we really have that great confidence or do we just sort of like the words of that confidence and, and hope one day I get there? You know, I, I, and just to refresh our memory, it says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries, and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. So, you know, it's sort of like uh, uh, what the coach might say in the locker room before the game starts, right? And then uh, everybody uh, on the team is going, "Yeah, yeah, bring them on, I'm confident, right? Uh, and uh, when you read this, you get the idea that, uh, you know, it's like Superman, right? We have the, uh, the big H- HS on our uh, chest. That's, well, I should say R- uh, uh, RH, but uh, Ruach HaKodesh, uh, or Holy Spirit, right? I was going to say not, not Howard Silverman. I just want you to know that, okay? Right just want to make, make that clear, all right? Uh, and that, uh, you know, all the, the bullets bounce off. Uh, uh, that could be the way you, you might read that. And there are some really triumphalist type people that read it that way and just speak of just, you know, uh, victory in, and, and, and in a way uh, living in denial of what may be actually happening in their lives or the world around them. And so it's important that we understand that verses 1 to 3 uh, is sort of like the end, it's like the conclusion in a way. And as I said in a a recent Bible study, uh, one way to read this psalm is actually to start in verse 14 and read it it to verse 1, because really uh, the beginning of the psalm is the end game, you know, the, the confidence that we have in the Lord. And actually, verses 5 and 6, 1, 2, and 3, and 5 and 6 kind of fall into that category. Verses 5 and 6 say, "...for in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy." I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. So again, this great voice of victory. And, and just, a, here's a little aside, a little by the way. It is kind of interesting that we read this on, uh, leading up to Rosh Hashanah, and then on the other side of Rosh Hashanah, because I, in verse 6 when it says, And now my head will be lifted up uh, or, yeah, above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices, with shouts of joy. Uh, you know what the word there is uh, in Hebrew is truah, uh, which, uh, which is uh, the, the word that is used uh, to name what we call Rosh Hashanah in the Bible, Yom HaTruah. Uh, and uh, literally what it means is loud or loud noise. So it's translated in some places in the Bible, alarm or hear shouts of, of joy. So, yeah, when you listen carefully, when uh, Paul Weisberger blows a shofar, uh, when, uh, when you hear me say, stand over here and say, truah, right? You say, what do those words mean? Well, truah basically means make a, make a noise, <laughs> and, uh, or shout, or alarm, or loud. Uh, in fact, uh, it, probably the most famous place you read that word is in Psalm 150, right? But sealed to lay truah, right? Loud symbols. Uh, and so the word is translated loud there. So it's kind of interesting that uh, you see uh, the word truah uh, right here in Psalm 27. Now, okay, back as I reel myself back in. So uh, we said last time that uh, in the psalm, like we said, the end game is really the, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. So how does he get there? How do you get that kind of confidence? And what kind of confidence is it? Uh, and so the first thing we noticed was in verse 4. It's a very famous verse uh, in the Bible uh, and something to really meditate on. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Well, we talked all about that last time. And uh, I will just reiterate the sense of the one thing I have asked from the Lord, that I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Wow, that is quite a thing to say. Uh, And I wonder how many of us could really say that. This one thing that I seek, you know, it isn't, Lord, defeat my enemies, Lord, give me all the uh, silver and gold uh, from, uh, you know, Egypt and Assyria. Uh, it isn't, Lord, let me live uh, to a ripe old age, Lord, uh, bless my family. It's, I want more of you, Lord, and that is the ground. We could say that is the grounding of, of uh, uh, or the key, one might say, of how we gain that confidence, uh, and, uh, and we'll see in a few moments that this seems to predominate many psalms, this issue of uh, single-mindedness, of wanting more of God, okay? Uh, so, uh, so far, so in verses, uh, I mean, that'd be a really nice psalm, verses 1 to 6, and actually, it works out so well because verse 4 is like right in the middle. You can even, you can even um, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, diagram it, you know? Uh, it works so well. Uh, but it's only the first half of the psalm. Now, the second half of the psalm sounds a little different with all of that confidence and desire. Look what he says now beginning in verse 7, just reading all the way to the end. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. And be gracious to me and answer me. When thou didst say, Seek my face, my heart said to thee, Thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me. Do not forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me thy ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait The Lord. The tenor of verses 7 to 14 is very different from 1 to 6. Here it seems that the very same person is crying out to God, crying out, Hear, O Lord. You know, this is very interesting. We're used to the Shema, Shema Yisrael. So this is Shema Adonai. Listen, O Lord. You know, now we would not be so audacious to say, obey, uh, O Lord, right? We would not say that. We make a big deal out of that in the Shema. Uh, but it's the same word. Uh, but here, certainly, uh, uh, it tells you how uh, vehement the, the psalmist is. Listen to me, O Lord. So this is not someone who seems to be boasting, and overflowing uh, in what we might call a a prideful uh, uh, confidence, right? Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Someone who talks that way and then also says, of course, be gracious to me and answer me. Someone who prays that way isn't praying for the first time. Someone who prays this way has been praying and praying and praying and waiting and waiting and waiting. You know? It, it reminds me of like Habakkuk and other psalms where you have that... It could have even been here. How long, O Lord? How long? Look up that in a concordance one of these days. When when uh, when uh, these psalmists cry, How long, O Lord? How long is it going to take for something to happen? You know? Uh, now... We might think, wow, how could someone like, pray that way? But you know, God seems to appreciate that. I think he likes passion, right? I, uh, when, when the psalmists pray that way, they're never chastised for it. And you know what's really interesting? I won't take the time to go there, but, but why not? If you have... Uh, <laughs> keep your finger in uh, Psalm 27 and, uh, and search for Habakkuk. Okay, He's in the H's, Okay, in the uh, Minor Prophets okay, Habakkuk, very interesting. If you can find Obadiah, okay, just keep going, and uh, and you'll eventually come to Habakkuk, kind of the middle of the minor prophets, after Jonah, okay, you know, and Micah, and you you know, Nachum, which is pronounced Nachum, right, and uh, and Habakkuk. So I, uh, Habakkuk I, is very upset at the beginning of, of the book. It's it's a very unusual prophet. It's written more like wisdom literature than prophecy, uh, more like poetry than anything else, right? How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I mean, he gets right down to it, right? And then uh, he goes, he has this big argument with God in the first chapter. Big argument, okay? Then uh, in chapter 2, if you look at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and if you've ever been to Israel, you can actually walk along the ramparts of the old city. Very interesting. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. So in other words, he's thinking, you know, I might have like gone a little too far. So I'm going to hang on for dear life uh, and uh, wait till God reproves me. Well, what's interesting is uh, God does not reprove him. God does not correct him. Uh, God actually uh, gives him some great words. And so it says, The Lord answered and said to me, Record the vision, inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come, it will not delay. That's a famous verse that's uh, in, it's in the rabbinic literature in a number of places. And uh, uh, quoted in varieties of biblical and extra-biblical locations. Because what he's saying is, what I'm telling you, Habakkuk, is going to happen, definitely going to happen, it's not going to fail, it's moving forward, but look at what it says toward the end, though it tarries, wait for it. In other words, it's coming, it's going to happen, but you know, Habakkuk, it might seem like it's taken forever, but you know what? Wait for it. Wait for it, and then he says, for it will certainly come, it will not delay, meaning it will happen at the appropriate time according to my clock, not necessarily your clock, okay? Uh, And then the passage goes on. Uh, And and so when you come back to Psalm 27, when he says, Hear, O Lord, hear me, listen to me, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me, and answer me, uh, he has that same kind of attitude. And the point, I guess, for us is is that God does not uh, uh, dislike that kind of passion. In fact, Yeshua even tells one or two little stories uh, about prayer. And the idea is, ask over and over and over and over again. And and so it's kind of interesting uh, that, you know, he doesn't say, enough already, stop honking me in China. you know what I mean? As we might say in Yiddish, right? Uh, Don't bother me anymore, don't yell at me, right? No, God enjoys the engagement with his people because... Someone who's passionate for an answer from God means that they're looking to God for the answer and not everywhere else plus God, you know? Uh, And so that's very important for us to remember. The, The one who has this confidence and does not fear is one who runs to God, is one who runs to God. Then he says, and this is kind of interesting In our English, you'll notice the beginning of the verse, it probably should be in italics in most of your translations, when you did say, it's very interesting, it doesn't actually say when you did say in Hebrew, it starts out, my heart said to you, seek my face, my face, O Lord, I shall seek. So translators have a hard time with that. How does my heart say to you, seek my face? You know, but God is saying, seek my face. So how does my heart say, seek my face? Well, I would suggest that the, the emphasis of that verse is, I, in, in the recesses of my being, I know, Lord, that you want me to seek your face. Because you have said that, seek my face. But, but the emphasis is, in my heart, I know, seek my, I'm thinking, seek my face. So I'm going to seek your face. I'm going to seek you, Lord, with all of my heart. I'm going to seek you with all of my heart. Now, when uh, when it says, seek my face, that's literally what it says. But what it means is, that is a euphemism for the presence of God. The presence of God. I'm going to seek you, Lord, no matter what. Right? Uh, And then he says... Do not hide your face from me. So it's like this struggle. That's what I see here is like a a struggle, almost like a a wrestling with God to, uh, to experience his presence. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. So he has experienced deliverance from God in the past. He has experienced deliverance from God, but we might say in this psalm, there is, a, uh, there is some unanswered issue going on in this particular time, okay? You have been my help. Then you'll notice in verse 10, then he says, Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. So and th- then in verse 10, when he says, for my, mo- for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. This is, great. this is a great illustration of Hebrew poetry, where you have this perfect symmetry here. First, he says, Do not turn your servant away in anger. You've been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, God of my salvation. My, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. So this is not a person who is wondering if God is real If God exists, this is a person who has experienced deliverance in the past, but may not be feeling it in this present moment, and has the confidence to cry out to God in such a way, has the confidence to run to God and say, I want more of you. The one thing I want is to dwell in your presence. And we see the the angst, hear me, O Lord, okay? And and uh, and he says, I'm going to seek your face. Down deep in my heart, I know you want me to seek your face, and I'm going to seek you. And it's interesting. That's why, you see, when God says, seek my face, he desires that we indeed come to him. But then we it begs the question, so then why doesn't he just, vavum, here I am, right? Because there's a reason for it. And the reason is, is because, in our humanity, in our humanity, in our sinfulness, we have a difficult time experiencing the presence of God. It's not like God is far, actually far away, and then he shows up. He's always there, but the question is, what, what, do, I need to, uh, what do I need to do in my own life to experience his presence? which may be a reason why we say this for 40 straight days, uh, uh, starting, uh, getting a head start a month uh, ahead of the, uh, of the high holy days. God desires that we come to him and at the right time and in the right way and with our own right heart, he does indeed make himself known, uh, make himself known to us. So you see the confidence that he has, O oh God of my salvation, the Lord will take me up. You have been my help. Uh, but at this point right now, he is crying out again for uh, a God. There is something going on in his life. Okay. Uh, yet, we see in verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 and 6 that he ends up with this confidence. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I dread? See? And we see that there is a process to getting there. All right, now, 11 to 14, he says, Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me on a level path. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, we see uh, he, he's single-minded. The one thing he wants is to be in the presence of God. The second thing we see here is uh, that he engages God. In prayer, he engages God. Uh, He goes to God in a time of trouble. And then we see he's teachable. He's teachable. Uh, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Level path, you could say, uh, in other places, might be an upright path. Usually that word is translated upright. It's not the word for righteous. Different word altogether. Uh, But perhaps what he's saying is, Lead me on a path, Lord, that, uh, that uh, doesn't have lots of rocks and uh, you know, holes uh, that I don't see and that I might stick my foot in and do something to my leg. You know, give me a level path, Lord, uh, uh, to walk on uh, because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. Uh, and so in, that, in 11 and 12, he, he, he has these adversaries, he has foes, and he says, Lord, teach me your way. Let me walk your way, Lord. Okay, So he's teachable. He wants to know. He wants to be taught the right way. He knows that God is the place of refuge. Interestingly enough, in verse 10, when he says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, we could say that, you know, one of the things you learn if you live long enough, that at some point or another, everyone will disappoint you, right? Sometime or another, everyone will disappoint you. Uh, He says, my father and my mother have forsaken me. You know, and so he seeks God. But we could all say that to a, a certain degree. You know, and when, when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, God is where we turn to, even if people disappoint us. And boy, you know uh, that can be um, it can be devastating, right? When he says, "My father and my mother have forsaken me," that could have just been so devastating. He does he doesn't know where to go, but thankfully, he does not relate his father and his mother. Evidently evidently, he doesn't relate his father and his mother as the, in the exact same way he relates to God. And that is a, a profound truth. I'm sort of passing over it in a couple of minutes, but that's a profound truth. Because oftentimes what happens is we become very disappointed in God when people don't come through for us. We become very disappointed in God when people do not come through for us, right? Wow. Wow. I can't believe this person did that. Sometimes, what it is, is faith is shaken when a leader falls has like a moral failure, you know. So we say, "Wow, I put all my eggs in his basket, and look what happened to him." I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go to that place of worship anymore. Or I gotta. I gotta think if I really believe this uh, an, anymore. Well, may I suggest? That we're placing our eggs in the wrong basket. That no spiritual leader measures up uh, I, uh, beyond uh, uh, a great sinner. <laughs> you know? That no spiritual leader... Uh, I See, the term spiritual leader... just we have to start with that. The term spiritual leader does not mean the most spiritual. How do you like that? Uh, uh, it means the person who is overseeing this group of spiritual people see now there are responsibilities I'm making a point. I mean I could make the other point too if certainly if, if I was in some leaders meeting I would talk all about uh, you know uh, being held accountable to God for the way we conduct ourselves because we're role models and uh, I could go just go to town on that uh, and uh, you know when we talk about elders in a congregation, the, uh, uh, you know, the the importance of that. People look at you in a certain way. Yes, that's all true. However, a healthy congregation does not view the leaders of it as uh, sinless, you know? Uh, As I said to someone uh, a while back, you know, uh, I nor anyone here is the Pope of Beth Messiah, Okay. That's very important, very profound. So not only leaders, but also people that you know, like maybe a person who shared the good news with you, or maybe just someone that you've known for a long time in a community of faith. I mean, you know, my uh, observation is, is that uh, when people question their faith because of something that has happened, nine times out of ten, it's because someone has disappointed them. Not directly that God has disappointed them, But somebody else disappointed them. So here we see, my mother and my father have forsaken me. And so, therefore, Lord, because you're just like my father and I can't get past my father, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. It's not what he says. He says, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. You can always run to God regardless of your father or your mother or the person who led you to the Lord, or some experience that you had as a child, or as an adult, in some kind of religious setting that turned you off, you can get past that in Yeshua. You can get past that in the Lord. And here, before the time of Messiah, clearly, David is able to get past Saul, and get past you know, the, uh, the, the issues in his life. And in Messiah, what do we read? We're new creatures in Messiah. Old things have passed away. We can overcome those things and run to God. And so we see that while he is wrestling with God, he knows that God is the one to whom he can run. He has that kind of, we could call it, a humble Kind of confidence, and he knows that the right way uh, is, uh, is indeed a uh, God is indeed God's way. He wants to do things God's way, not simply give me what I want to make me feel good, but given my adversary, given my situation, lead me on a way in which I will not stumble. Right? We have a tendency to do things our own way and call them the way of the Lord. But confidence in a relationship with God is running to him in prayer and seeking his way of negotiating the the difficult waters, see? And so it's a cultivated relationship. In order for him to say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? He has to cultivate this kind of relationship with God. It's not manufactured by simply singing a couple of songs and reading the Bible once in a while. It's cultivated by a relationship of God that is developed, developed over time. Now, notice as we come toward the end of this, he says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is a fascinating verse. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the land of the living. It doesn't say, I would have despaired unless I experienced the goodness of the land of the living. In other words, he's saying, I would have despaired unless I had the faith to believe that God is going to get me there. I would have despaired. I would have become depressed and And I, you know, and just sort of slipped away if I had not believed that God would get me there. And so he is a man in process. He's not there. But his confidence is in one way or another, God will get him there. It kind of reminds you of Abraham and Isaac, which is what we'll be reading on on Monday. uh, on, On Rosh Hashanah, the traditional reading is about Abraham and Isaac. Right, God tells Abraham to do the unthinkable, right? I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, the son of promise, and I want you to make a burnt offering out of him. That is preposterous. That is uh, outrageous. And Abraham takes Isaac and they begin walking up this mountain. And Isaac asks him, so where's the, um, I see we got the wood I see, uh, you know, you brought the lighter fluid. Um, We're set here, but uh, I don't see a lamb. Uh, And so what does Abraham say? God will provide. God will provide. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know in what way. What Abraham knows is, we're just going to keep walking up here, walking up Mount Moriah. And he has the faith to believe that he says, he says to his servants, the boy and I will return. He doesn't know how, but he knows by faith that they will both return because he believes the promise of God that's all tied up in Isaac, okay? And so we see here in verse 13, he has this, he's in process, and he says he would have despaired if he didn't have the faith to know that God will come through. And then verse 14 is an admonition. Verses 1 to 13 is a, um, is a testimony. It's like sharing a testimony about his own life. And all of it leads up then to verse 14. In other words, we could say, here's what I want to tell you, right? Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. And of course, we know that wait and hope uh, is really the same where that could be translated hope in the Lord or hope for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, hope. For the Lord. Or hope in the Lord. Uh, and so this is a man who is in process. So like I said, if we started in verse 14, we could say, here's the admonition. Right? Wait for the Lord. And now let me tell you my story. Right? And his story ends up with his own confidence in the Lord. And how he does not fear. And he does not dread. He's had, he's, he's had an experience with God. Uh, in which uh, uh, God has blessed him, and now here uh, he is—he's uh, like wrestling with God for the blessing. And and uh, when you read in the scriptures uh, about some of the great heroes uh, of the faith, uh, we read that, uh, for example, uh, Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He would not let go until he received a blessing, right? And, and what is that blessing? That blessing is the infusion of life. God gives him a new name, a new destiny, at least to him. Was a, a new destiny uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and a reason for being. Uh, what does Job say? I know my Redeemer lives, right? So it's just as Abraham went up the mountain, knowing that he didn't know the end result, but he knew that God uh, would come through, Job, not knowing the end result, but knowing that God would come through. Jacob, not knowing the end result and wrestling for the blessing. So we see here that to come away with the confidence of God and not fearing what's going on around us and not dreading it, it requires uh, being single-minded and wanting more of God. It comes with wrestling with God in in prayer, uh, it comes with uh, trusting God, even though all the people around us may have failed us. It comes with a teachable heart. Uh, when we say, Lord, show me your way, teach me your way. And then that cultivates a heart of faith and trust, of waiting on the Lord. And that brings us to this great place of confidence. And uh, so as we approach, uh, Rosh Hashanah and as we uh, uh, read this psalm over and over again may we own it may we be able to say the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear when we approach Rosh Hashanah we should not do so with fear and trepidation oh no you know we're coming to the uh, judgment no we're coming to God who welcomes us and the doorway of this great experience is indeed repentance and uh, returning uh, to the Lord. And so may we not come with fear, but may we come with expectation, expectation of blessing, expectation of the presence of God. And so may we be able to begin this year with this quiet, humble confidence of knowing that God is there for us when we seek his face. And may we be as the psalmist who says, I want nothing else but more of you. And we see the fruit that that bears. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray, Lord, that we would uh, really desire you. Lord, when we desire you, confidence comes our way. When we desire you, we begin to live in a different way. Lord, when we desire you, Uh, Lord, that's a prayer that you answer. And uh, Lord, uh, you give us satisfaction in our life. You give us life. We live a different way. Lord, uh, God, when, when we seek you and we wrestle with you, Lord, thank you, God, that you never, ever turn us away. Lord, I pray that we might realize that you are present in the process. And Lord, I know that oftentimes we like to wait for, you know, Show me the money, so to speak. Show me the end result. When, Lord, you are saying to us, I'm, I'm here all the time. So I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be focused on you, God, on drinking from the wells of salvation uh, as a deer pants for water, Lord, that we might have a thirst for you. And, Lord, then when we cultivate that kind of thirst for you, Lord, then we will see that that thirst is quenched. Then we will see what it means to truly wait on the Lord. May this journey through Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot bring us indeed to that place of confidence. And we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.